Amen. When the way forward seems impossible, being a child of God in a world that is alien to God has never been an easy thing. And because of this, there are times when the Christian feels that life is really a struggle. Opposition arises, problems develop, situation seems hopeless, doubts come, and we begin to struggle. These things cause frustration, despair, and even doubts of depression. But this should not really surprise us, for Jesus has warned us in John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but it doesn't end there. The Lord mercifully adds something else to it. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The problems and the difficulties of the Christian life may be great, but let it sink in today, right now, that the Lord is in control of every situation. And we discover this in the story before us here in Exodus chapter 14. It's the story of the Israelites at the Red Sea. Here the people face a situation that caused them to be sore afraid. That simply means they were very fearful. They were very afraid. But it also shows the amazing resources that were on their side. The amazing resources available to them at that time of difficulty. So difficulties and resources go side by side in the account before us. They also do so in the life of every child of God. And like so many in the Old Testament, this incident presents in a very pictorial way the experiences of Christians in this gospel age. Let us think for a little time this morning about what Israel faced at the Red Sea as we consider this subject when the way forward seems impossible. Two years ago, today I took over from Mr. Higginson. It'll be two years next uh, Sunday when I preach my first sermon. And maybe the way for you during these past two years the way before you has seemed impossible as a congregation. But I do believe that there's a word to encourage us here this morning in God's precious word. I have three simple things that I want to highlight and share with you this morning. First of all, there is the mystery of the illustration that is presented to us here in this 14th chapter. What an illustration it is. The people were on their way out of the land of Egypt. They have been redeemed, but they're still not out of the land of Egypt. But Moses was not leading them by the shortest route. Instead, he led them into what appeared to them to be a dead end. Notice that word turn there in verse 2. It seems to me now that Moses was leading them in the natural way, I suppose humanly speaking, the sensible way, up into the promised land. And then God suddenly intervened and he said, turn and encamp before Pihahiroth between Migdol and the sea. You may be wondering about that, but God in his divine providence 
was laying a trap for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So that little word turn, it might seem and appear very small and significant word, but God was working out his divine purpose, his divine plan. He was laying a trap for the enemy. Now the short way possibly was about 200, 220 miles going that way that Moses no doubt was intending to go. It may have taken them two, two and a half, three weeks to get into across the border, uh, to get into the land of promise. So why was God leading them to what appeared to be a dead end? Why? That's the question. Why is the Lord leading me this way? Why is he leading us this way? Why is he not taking us the short route into the promised land? I'll tell you why. Because that was a dangerous way. Because along that day, there were uh, Egyptian military outposts all along that way. So it would have been dangerous. It would have been safe. And it also would have brought the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, uh, into the territory and through the territory of the Philistines. And no doubt that likely would have caused some conflict. And they were not ready for this. They never fought a battle before. They didn't have weapons, and they would have been at the mercy of the Philistines. So God's way turned out to be the best way after all. God's way is the best way. We can't argue with that. God has proved that time and time and time again, God's way is always the best way. And it took the people 40 years to be prepared to enter into the land of Canaan. This was God's way. It says here in verses 1 and 2, the Lord spake, spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to the people, ye shall encamp by the sea. Now we may be asking the question, why, like the children of Israel, why is God leading us this way? Well, they had a lot to learn about themselves. And also they had a lot to learn about the Lord. And sometimes when we meet these situations and we ask ourselves the questions, why is this happening to me? God has a purpose in it all. We need to learn more about ourselves. Just how fragile we are, how unbelieving we are. And at the same time, we learn a lot about the Lord, how gracious he is, how merciful he is, how faithful he is. His eye is upon the righteous. And his ear is ever open unto their cry. Maybe we as a congregation wanted to fill the pulpit the short way. But God is obviously leading the congregation the long way around. I said at the very start, sometimes it takes two years, maybe even a third year for a congregation to get the right man. It's always better to get the right man and go forward with God and know the blessing that God has promised to that man or that individual and the congregation that goes through with him and walks closely with him. Sometimes the congregation may not understand it all, but God's way is the best. God's way is always the best. You think, for example, of these two godly women, Martha and Mary. Oh, they loved the Lord, as did their brother Lazarus. Lazarus falls sick. They send an urgent message to Jesus. Surely the Lord will come. He knows all about us. He knows where we live. He knows uh, just uh, the way we feel at a time like this. 
The Lord abode two days still in that place where he was. And when he did arrive back, it was a time when Lazarus had been in the grave four days. So the two sisters wanted the Lord to work the short way. But at the end of the day, the Lord took the long way. And there was a reason for that. Yes, it would have been a wonderful thing to have preserved Lazarus from dying, but it was a far more wonderful thing when the Lord raised a dead man from the dead and brought great glory to God. So sometimes when we want uh, to go the short way, it's not necessarily God's way. He wants to take us the long way to manifest his glory and his power because God's way is the best way. Now, what about you? Are you walking with God, child of God? Are you following his leading? Are you being guided by the Holy Spirit now? Don't try to hide. Don't try to cover it up. Thou God says me. I speak with boldness because the Lord is here. Someone today needs a touch from God. You need to turn. Someone here today needs to turn. I don't know who it is. Someone needs to turn. You're not going God's way. You need to turn. Get out of that relationship you're in. Get out of that situation you're in. Maybe that job you're in. That place that you frequent. Get out of it. Turn. Because you'll never be happy there. You can only be happy when you're in the will of God. Doing his will. Going forward with him. Not going back. Not enjoying the companionship of the world. Get out of Egypt. Stay out of Egypt. Walk with God. Get on the Calvary path. Get through with God. Your vows to pay. The Egyptians marched after them, verse 10. Now these problems that they were facing were the direct consequence of who they were. They were the redeemed people of God. If they had not been redeemed, this would not have happened. In Exodus chapter 17, the people uh, are thirsty. And God in grace provides supernaturally for them by telling Moses to smite the rock and out came that mighty refreshing water. That was a happy day for them. They were refreshed. They were blessed. God has answered prayer. God has met the need. In verse 8 of the same chapter, the Bible says, then came Amalek and fought with Israel. So there's the time of refreshing, time of blessing. God comes and, and intervenes in grace. Then the very next verse tells us, then came Amalek and fought with Israel. And that's the way it is in life. Sometimes you get up there to the mountaintop, God blesses you. Oh, you're happy, you're blessed, you rejoice. Maybe the next day or the next verse, the next part of your story, Amalek comes and you have a fight on your hands. The hardships were sent to test their faith and to teach them wisdom. I'm saying it again. His ways are best. That was what God was telling his people, teaching them. The difficulties were the Red Sea was before them and the Egyptian army uh, was behind them. Not surprising, therefore, to read in verse 10, they were sore afraid, very afraid. But according to the same verse, but at least they cried unto the Lord. Oh, that's a good sign. That's very encouraging. But at the same time, in the following two verses, verses 11 and 12, they did a bit of complaining. 
Now, I think as a preacher, I can say that I would do a fair bit of complaining just like anybody else, but we're all in the same boat, you know. We can cry unto the Lord in times of need, but at the same time, we can soon change our tone and our tune, and we can complain. So they cried to God, and then they complained to the leader. This is what we told you, Moses. We didn't really want to, to come with you. This is what we told you back in the land of Egypt. Let us alone, they said. This is very strange. And I say that for this reason. Because the complaining came on the back of ten plagues God had unleashed upon the people of Egypt. Proving that Pharaoh was no match for God. With God all things are possible. And so they're complaining And all they have to do is to look back to those plagues that God sent, vindicating the cause of his people, destroying the Egyptians, humbling Pharaoh. And yet they're complaining. It did not make sense for God to have done for them what he had done to bring them thus far and then for them to perish at this particular point. What were they thinking? Well, I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but I know what Pharaoh was thinking. He says, they are entangled in the land. They're they're easy pickings for me. Someone told him, the people are away and and the land's going to be bankrupt. The economy's going to be destroyed because of it, the slaves go. And we don't want to work ourselves. And so this is the thought that came to his mind. They're entangled in the land. They'll be easy pickings for me. I'll go after them. That word entangled simply means confused or lost or even perplexed as it is used in the book of Esther chapter 3. It's the picture of sheep wandering in the wilderness. But let me remind you right now, God makes no mistakes. God is not the author of confusion. If you're confused, it's not the work of God. If the congregation is confused about the way things are happening, the way things are going... Well, that's not of God. God is not the author of confusion. So Israel's entangled in the land. They're shut in by the wilderness. They're trapped before the sea. Oh, they could see no way forward. They could see no way out. And maybe that's where you're at today. God has taken away a good man. Will we ever get anybody like him? Maybe not. But please understand the way I say this. I wouldn't want anyone to get the wrong thought God might just send you somebody better no disrespect to God's servant and I don't want you to take it the wrong way that's a thought to keep before you because God's ways are the best he works according to his own divine purpose and plan they had been slaves but they had been redeemed by the Passover, the blood of the Passover lamb. Slavery was now behind them. They were on the way to the promised land. It was because of this that these difficulties arose. And what was true of them is also true of Christians. God has redeemed us by his precious blood. The bondage of sin is behind us. Heaven is before us. That's something to rejoice in, is it not? And there are trials particular to Christians. And they face these trials as a direct result of coming out of the world. 
Far from being exempt from problems. Some people have this crazy idea. You come to Jesus and there'll be no sickness, there'll be no trials and no burdens. If you have sickness in your life or if you have trials, there's something wrong with your life. That's a lot of old nonsense. We can see it here in this portion of the word of God before us. Christians have the same kind of problems that confront non-Christians, such as health worries, family problems, financial concerns, plus spiritual problems that the unconverted have no idea about. These are the problems of the new life in Jesus Christ, part of the spiritual conflict and battle that we are engaged in as the people of God as Satan opposes us as we seek to walk with God. Though free from the slavery of sin, its influence, its temptations still bother us. Sometimes we can't understand why God allows certain things to happen in our lives. We complain and bitterness can flow, sin flow from such complaints. This was Israel's attitude at the Red Sea. It was blocking their way to the blessings of the promised land. They could not understand why this barrier was before them. That's it. So they're by the sea, come to a dead end, come to a standstill. God's going to do a mighty work for them. So when you think again of what I've said about the Egyptians pursuing after them, Why was Pharaoh and the Egyptians pursuing after them? Pharaoh wanted to take them back. He had lost his slaves. It was going to hurt the economy. We've got to get them back. And here we have a vivid picture of Satan pursuing the Christian in his walk with God. It's it's real to every believer, whether you're saved for a long time or only saved for a short period of time. The devil cannot rob you of your salvation. Please note that. But he can disturb your assurance and peace and joy. I've been preaching in the book of Ezra. I hope you're keeping up on your studies on the book of Ezra for Tuesday night. I've mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, and we want to look at him as a type of Satan. He comes to Jerusalem. He carries away the precious things from God's house, away to Babylon. He stores them there for many years. And so this is the work of the devil in relation to the blessings and the peace that the children of God enjoy to try to steal away the precious things that we as the people of God enjoy. Then there's another man, 70 years later, king of Persia, a man called Cyrus, described in the Bible as my shepherd and God's anointed. What did he do? He restored to the people the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar had taken away. And in these descriptions, my shepherd and mine anointed, he points us to Jesus Christ. The devil wants to take away our joy and our peace and our contentment, but the Lord Jesus Christ typified in that particular story in the book of Ezra as the one who wants to restore to us the joy of the Lord and peace and gladness and keep us happy in the Lord. Maybe someone has lost the joy of the Lord. You're miserable. You're making life miserable for your family and friends and everybody else around you. Well, you need to look again to Christ. These people were forgetting the power of God on their behalf. They were acting as if they had no God and everything depended on them. Everything depended on them. 
So there, there's the, the mystery of, of this illustration. Why? But then the second place is the marvel of the intervention. The people may have been in a panic, and they were in a panic. It's easy to panic, isn't it? Even though we may be a preacher, there are times we panic. I'm sure you've had that experience yourself. We panic. One author wrote, there's no panic button in heaven. Now God had a plan for these people. He had the plan to give them the land of Canaan. He had a purpose for them. They were to be a kingdom of priests unto God in that land. And he had a provision for them because Christ had to be born in that land. He had to die in that land to provide salvation for sinners. So God has a purpose. God has a plan. God had a place. Because God was going to make a provision for the sins of men. Because Christ had to be there. And God needed to get his people into that promised land. In the fullness of time then. For Christ to be born there. For Christ to make an atonement for sin. Everything God did revolved around the person of his son. The Lord Jesus Christ. So what appears to be a dead end to us is nothing more than an open door for God. It's an opportunity for God to prove himself to us. He knows what he's doing, even when it appears that he doesn't know what he's doing. We may rest assured that he does. Our responsibility is to trust when we don't understand what he's doing. And that can be difficult. That needs grace. He giveth more grace. That's the promise of God. And so if you are facing one of these situations and it's a trying time for you, you've got to look at what God has shown to you in the Holy Scriptures, how he has worked in the past. Because usually and generally the way God works in the past, he continues to work in the future, in a similar way, similar fashion, on behalf of his people. Because we're precious to him, as Israel was, the apple of his eye. There are two aspects of faith brought to attention in this 14th chapter. There's what I would call passive faith, mentioned there in verse 13, because the word that came to them from Moses was, stand still, stand still. We must wait in God. And I suppose we need grace to wait. It's hard to wait at times. But then in verse 15, there's active faith. The word that came next was, go forward. God's people then had to stand still. They had to wait on God. And then when the time came, God said, go ahead, go forward, move on. The people had to move on with God. So maybe this is a time of reflection for the congregation. Time of waiting, waiting on the Lord. He's testing us. He's testing his people. It's something great ahead for us. It's something wonderful to do in the congregation. But he's saying, wait, stand still. And I will let you know when to move. Keep your eye on the Lord. Get your eyes on him. Don't listen to people who discourage. Don't listen to people who raise questions that are false and not real and important. Look to the Lord. And you can't go wrong. And you won't go wrong. So he's saying, wait. Wait until I say go. And when that time comes, I believe it will go. That would be my mind. That would be my advice to you today. 
from the Holy Scriptures. Wait. And when God lets us know, then we must move on with him because God will lead us to the right man in the right place at the right time. Don't get down. Don't become over-worried about things and stressed out about things. And think, oh, oh, some of the good men are gone. Well, what will we do now? Well, we'll just wait for God to send us the right man. And he will, in due course. What a comfort. What a comfort providence is. God had brought them to the Red Sea. And let me tell you something else. He was able to get them across the Red Sea. For all things work together for good to those that love God. That's it. That's what the Bible says. But sometimes perplexing circumstances come and uh, we, we see how the children of Israel reacted when it happened with them as they stood there by the Red Sea. But remember this. God not only has the answer, but God is already dealing with the issue. And that was what the people had to learn at the Red Sea. God is the answer. He has the answer. And he is already working on the problem. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. He's enticing. He's enticing the lion into the snare. He's drawing him. The Egyptians had persecuted the people of God. Now judgment time is coming on the nation of Egypt. And so the Lord is drawing the Egyptians. He needs to bring them here. They would meet their destiny here. They would meet God here. This was God's purpose. This was God's plan. Yes, he set the trap for them. And so he has the answer. He is the answer. But he is dealing with the issue. He's dealing with the problem. Down there in the land of Egypt, he's working in Pharaoh's heart. He's hardening his heart. He's putting it in his heart to go after the, Egypt, the children of Israel. We must wait on God and be patient and trust in him. Because divine providence and through divine providence, God upholds, he guides and governs all events and circumstances in the lives of his people and in fact in the lives of all men and women in this world. We don't go to the stars for guidance. I hope you're not one of these people that get a newspaper and go to the stars and see what the stars have to say about your life. That's nonsense. It's all the devil, that kind of thing. We're not guided by the stars. We're not uh, guided by chance nor luck. Sometimes we bring luck into our conversation, but there's such a thing as luck. Divine providence. It's not fatalism. But God, but God in his providence, he governs our lives. And Moses said, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Israel didn't have to fight. And the enemy was completely and utterly destroyed. And the thing is, God fought for them. God did something for them they couldn't do for themselves. Oh, what a powerful demonstration of power that was. God intervened. He took the wheels of the chariots of the Egyptians. They laired in the muck. Ah, but how did the children of Israel get across? Well, the Lord opened the sea and you think about the wind blowing all that night, dividing the water, drying the surface, the bed of the sea. And then the Lord took his people through in dry land. Uh, but things changed. 
when the water came in there and the muck there was in the bottom and the wheels come off the charge and they get stuck. Who's panicking now? Oh, I've got to get out of this place. Can you imagine the nightmare it was for them? Oh, to see the, 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 the two walls coming in upon them, the walls of water, and they want to get out of the place, and they're struggling to get away, and God is overcoming them, overtaking them, destroying them. That's the way he worked at that time. The Lord opened up the way and moved in a powerful fashion. The Red Sea may roll before us, the wilderness may entrap us, the enemy can be on our very heels, but God is on our side. And according to the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he will make a way of escape. Israel by the sea were delivered. The Egyptians in the sea were destroyed. Remember this? You go back to Exodus chapter 2. Pharaoh ordered the Jewish boys to be drowned. And now the sons of the Egyptians drowned. And the Red Sea, judgment and kind. You reap whatsoever you sow. I've got to come to an end. The ministry of the intercessor. Whatever their feelings were, Moses was in communion with God on their behalf. I, I mentioned this, I think, at the start. God spake unto Moses, and then Moses spoke unto the people of Israel. He knew the mind of God. He knew what God was going to do. So he's the intercessor. He points us to Christ, of course, in this. He knew what was in the mind of God. The Lord would fight for them. But the Christian has one greater than Moses. The one that Moses pointed to. Christ. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Now God allowed Moses to control the sea when Pharaoh was about to overtake God's redeemed people. Another scene, another sea, a sea that is tossed with the wind. Jesus was there. He stood up and he rebuked the wind and he said, Peace be still. And a great calm came. He, do, he who delivers his people by blood from the tyrant of Satan will never allow them to be tempted or destroyed by the tempests on the sea of life. It's a wonderful thought. And so Moses controls the sea under God and Christ controls every situation that we meet in life. The storm may come, the waves may beat upon the vessel, our little vessel out there in the Sea of Galilee, but he's in control of every situation. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember Genesis 23, Abraham wants to secure a grave for his wife, Sarah, he asks the Hittites to intercede for him with Ephron, the landowner. They wanted to give him a burial place. But he says, I want to pay for it. And he asked these people to intercede on his behalf. And in so doing, they secured the deal that he wanted. Our brother the other night, Tuesday, I think it was, mentioned Samuel there in First Samuel chapter 7. He called the people to Mizpah. And the Philistines heard this and they came to attack the people of God. But Samuel took and offered a lamb that points us to Christ. He interceded on behalf of the people with the result 
through the intercession based upon the sacrifice of the Lamb, the Philistines were dealt with and God's people were delivered. And this we have a wonderful picture of Christ, the one who ever lives on our behalf, the slain Lamb, the sacrifice, the mediator of the covenant, the intercessor with God who knows us, who cares for us, who loves us. He will never lead us the wrong way. He will never forsake us. Doesn't matter what may come our way. The fiercest storm. The waves can be threatening to us. But there's one in the glory who's praying for us. Interceding for us in the power of an endless life. He intercedes for us. And we need that because he counters Satan's activity who is forever accusing the brethren. Ever accusing us. Verse 19 of this chapter, the angel of God is mentioned. The angel of God, that's Christ, by the way. Christ is here at the Red Sea in his pre incarnate state. And uh, we're told here about this pillar of cloud that went before them to guide them. Uh, So they have been redeemed by blood and they have been guided by the cloud. And then we're told here that the pillar of cloud moved from the front to the back. Therefore, the cloud, Christ, was between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And during that night, darkness was on the side of the Egyptians and light was on the side of the people of Israel. There's only two camps here, by the way. The camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Some in the dark and some in the light. There are only two classes of people here this morning, the saved and the lost. The redeemed and the unredeemed. Sinners in sin and sinners saved by grace. Only two classes of people here this morning in this world. And we can see what happened in those times. And God intervened and God delivered his people and saved his people. And it's described in verse 31 as a great work. And the great work God wrought at Calvary through the death of his son was indeed a great work. And that great work was necessary to redeem the people from going down to hell, to save them by grace, to fit them for heaven and home. Are you ready for heaven? Are you fit for heaven? Have you had your sins forgiven you? Have you been redeemed? Have you been saved? To be honest about the thing. I'm not asking if you're good living or religious or you think you are saved. I'm asking you a very pointed question under God because I care for your soul. Are you redeemed? Have you had your sins forgiven you? Is it well with your soul? Where will you be in eternity? We're told at Calvary Christ spoiled principalities and powers. He triumphed over them. And that word spoiled means disarmed or deprived. The word refers to a person stripping off his clothes and Christ stripped Satan and and the demons of enslaving power from from, uh, from, uh, from his people. Set them gloriously free. Delivered them. Liberated them. Triumphing over them. That word comes from the possession there of the Roman generals leading their prisoners of war in a procession before the cheering public. That's what Christ did at the cross. He disarmed the powers of darkness. He defeated the devil. And thank God he liberated a people for whom he died on the cross to take them home to glory, to be with himself. At the cross, Christ defeated the devil 
Therefore, sealed his doom, sealing his doom. And they cannot rob God's people of what they have in Christ. So here we have this message. I trust that it has been a message to encourage you, to encourage this congregation. When the way forward seems impossible, God will, in his own good time, open up the way and lead his people, his congregation, has redeemed through. Oh, they had many a battle after that, but that's uh, a message for another time. So when the way forward seems impossible, look up. Pharaoh's coming behind us. The wilderness is all around us. The Red Sea's before us. So when you can't go back or go to the side or go forward, there's only one way you can go. Look up. Hallelujah. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's it. Get your eyes on him. And if it takes another year, so be it. If it takes less than that, so be it. But remember this. God's way is the best. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, bless what has been of thyself this day. Use it for thy glory to bring praise to thy thrice holy name. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. And for those who need to go, as we sing this concluding hymn, may the Lord bless them, go before them. And if it please the Lord to bring even a number again tonight under the means of grace, so be it, thy will be done. Have mercy upon us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The hymn number is 663. On that same night, Lord Jesus, in which thou wast betrayed, when without cause man's hatred against thee was displayed, we'll stand and we'll sing. Uh, this opening verse and uh, if you need to go or if you're unconverted feel free to leave as we sing after we sing this opening verse and then we will just uh, then sing the remainder as we come to the communion service itself so we'll stand for this hymn and all who need to go